Our scripture this morning is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 19. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And... If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word of the Lord. From 2006 to 2009, uh, Amy and I lived in Princeton, New Jersey while I was attending uh, seminary. And Princeton is a beautiful town. If you've ever been there, it's the university sort of looks like Hogwarts. It's this very quintessential um, kind of old world college town. And in the middle of campus sits uh, one of my favorite buildings. It's the Princeton University Chapel. And it's a very stark contrast when you compare it to the seminary chapel that's just a couple blocks away. The seminary chapel is, is the sort of quintessential New England church. It's, it's plain, white, bright, fairly stark. It, it has these clear purple hued stained glass windows open to the outside. And so the, the seminary chapel, I, I jokingly characterize its aesthetic as, as cheery Calvinism. It's, it's beautiful in its minimalism. But then you walk a couple blocks and you go to the university and, and the university chapel looks like something straight out of medieval Europe. And it's designed to look like a cathedral and it's, it's actually the second largest university chapel in the world and it, it boasts the, the second tallest university chapel ceiling in the world. And, and it's this masterwork of stone and of ornate stained glass. And it's massive and it's impressive and it's dark and intimidating and inspiring. 
And though it looks like it came from you know, medieval times, it was actually built in the 1920s to replace the old chapel that had burned down. And it was built in the midst of what was the secularization of American institutions of higher learning. And so its architects and designers realized that the building itself would have to be what one of my seminary classmates, who then went on to get his PhD in art history from the university, called an argument in stone and glass. And so the chapel itself was an aesthetic and theological argument for the centrality of God in the life of the university and the life of the mind. It was a building that was meant to inspire awe and draw the individual into worship as he, and it was just he's in those days at Princeton, felt tiny in this massive building and its sheer size drew him into an appreciation of the transcendent. And its beauty spoke to the fact that there was more to human existence than simply the material. And as you enter the main door to the chapel and and, and you walk into this impressive building, over the, the front door, the main door, there's an image carved in stone. And it's of Christ. And he's seated on a throne and he's surrounded by four beasts and he's holding a scroll. And on this scroll, there's a Greek inscription, which are the words of Revelation 4, verse 7, which says, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And then surrounding Christ and the four beasts are our 24 elders, another scene that is straight from the book of Revelation. And so every time you walk into the university chapel, you are reminded of two things that are central to understanding our passage this morning. And these are things that, you know, we'd rather, as modern people, sort of keep out of our minds or, or, or we neglect them or forget them. And that one is that our lives are lived on borrowed time because Christ is coming again. And when he does, he will come to judge, in the classic words of the Apostles' Creed, the quick and the dead. So you enter this university chapel and you're reminded each and every time of the last judgment and the end. And so to understand what Peter is talking about in our passage this morning, we need to hold these things in our minds to appreciate what Peter is saying. And this is the second to last week of the sermon series we've been doing called Foundations because Peter is the rock upon which Christ promised that he would build his church. And so as such, what Peter is providing us with is foundational theology and foundational practice for the church in every age. And Peter's central message is that because of the resurrection, because Christ has been raised from the dead, Christians can live with a new hope in the midst of a hostile world. That there's a different way to live, lives marked by patience and endurance and peace. And knowing that when they suffer for doing what's right, they haven't been rejected or abandoned by God. They're not at a distance from God, but in fact have drawn near to him. And they're walking in the very footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so Peter speaks of suffering as a trial, as a testing, like being tested by fire. And this metaphor takes on a whole new salience when we consider that when Peter was writing this letter, it was around the time that the fires of persecution had broken out at Rome under Nero, when Rome had burned and he blamed the Christians for it. And so part of his retaliation was literally using Christians as human torches in his gardens in an act of unspeakable barbarity that, 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 that even the pagan writers were absolutely shocked by. And so when we understand that and we understand the intense 
pressure that the church was under, we can appreciate and be grateful that their experience is very, very different and strange compared to our own. But we can read this letter and, and not sort of stand in judgment or wag our finger at, at, at Peter for writing about things that we don't like, like judgment, but instead stand in awe of their unrelenting faithfulness. And so that we recoil a bit from God's judgment that Peter speaks of in this passage, it says more about us than it does about him. And it speaks to our incredibly, incredibly privileged location that we want a God of pure love, or rather a God of sheer indulgence, who speaks to our bourgeois comfort. And the desire for God's judgment is just another way to express the desire for God's justice to break forth on the earth. And Peter says, you know, now that you're Christians and you've shared in Christ's death to sin, you, you can't live like you used to. And the list of behaviors that he gives, it's not just some kind of spring break, you know, gone wild frat life party list. That's what it sounds like. But, but that, those weren't extraordinary behaviors. That's just what, if you were a male in uh, Greco-Roman society, like part of participating in civic life, the life of the city and the life of the various uh, cults and religions that were a part of city life, it meant a lot of drinking and partying and carousing and sex. That's just what you did. You wanted to be a good citizen. You went to these parties and you did that kind of stuff. And when you stopped doing that because you were a Christian, that made you weird. And you would get all kinds of, called all kinds of names, slandered in various ways. And, And early Christians were slandered, being called atheists or haters of the human race. And so Peter's word to the church is don't worry about answering those accusations. Don't worry about responding to them. They're going to have to answer to the God who he says is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so Peter's encouragement to Christians who don't fit in is to be faithful. God's job description is to judge. So you don't have to. And God's judgment means simply that in the future, when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, some things will be declared wrong. And those things and those people who have so wedded themselves to them that they have become identified with them will have no place in God's realm. And that's the good news of judgment. Of God saying, that's not right. That doesn't belong here. We need that. I think one of the ways to think of the Me Too movement is that it is this act of judgment, this collective act of judgment that's occurring in our society upon the behavior of men towards women. Declaring certain things wrong and unacceptable and saying that those who are deeply associated with them have no place in polite society. And what exactly those boundaries are and the extent of judgment and condemnation, that's not my concern. But we are in the midst of a reckoning. And it stretches to the church too, as Peter says, judgment begins at the house of God. And if you've been following at all the turmoil from this past week out of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, it's, it's a, a seminary of the Southern Baptist Church, the largest prominent de- Protestant denomination by far in this country. You'll know that, and this was written up in the Washington Post, that the former president of that seminary was forced to retire, and then he was stripped of all of his honors after it came to light that he counseled a woman who was one of his students who came forward with an accusation of rape by a fellow student. He said, don't go to the police, forgive Forgive the alleged perpetrator. 
And so when we read about that and our blood begins to boil, then we can begin to understand why God's judgment isn't just desirous, it's necessary. The seminary president, he used God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness to cover for the sexual assault of one of his students. And that cries out for judgment, for condemnation. And I've, I've seen this kind of thing uh, firsthand. Uh, victim shaming, weaponization of God's grace and God's love firsthand. And it makes me so mad that I can't even talk about it. But we need God to judge in order to save us from seeking vengeance and so peter's message in our passage is framed on the one end by god's judgment and on the the other hand by christ's return he says that the end of all things is at hand and this means that we don't have time to waste doing the foolish things that we did before and so peter's basic sentiment is that his audience has wasted enough time already doing the things that they used to do And when it comes to this idea of wasting your time, I resonate deeply with that. I cannot tell you how much time I have wasted on my phone, right? I mean, it's a joke, but especially checking Twitter. And and I'm someone who, if, you know, I saw someone sitting in a casino at Mystic in front of a penny slot, you know, pulling the handle time after time for another dopamine hit, I would go, look at that rube. All the while, I'm hitting refresh, 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 doing the exact same thing. And we waste time because we, we don't appreciate till something really bad happens to ourselves or someone we know and love that it's incredibly precious. And we don't have as much of it as we'd like to think. And so when we're faced with that, we're reminded of our finitude and how different we would live If we knew that it wasn't ours to waste. So Peter says, you know, the end of all things is at hand. And we think, well, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. So it must not have been too near at hand. And the truth is this. Yes, Christ could return tomorrow. And he probably won't. But existentially speaking, we, we only have a finite number of days under the sun. And having kids, and Amy keeps reminding me of this, they grow up so fast, right? Everyone says, you blink. You blink. And all this time has passed. And what, what happened? What happened? And, and, and so, knowing all that, what I want to say to my kids when they grow up, well, I'm glad I spent a lot of time, more time with this than I did with you. And what I want to say the same thing to God. And so the end is near for all of us, nearer than we'd like to think. And when Peter says this, when he talks about judgment and the end of all things, it's, it's, it's not to inspire this community, the church, to live in fear. But it's to spur them, it's to spur us on to live life with a holy sense of urgency. It's like when you're watching a, a football game and your team cannot move the ball down the field. But then the two-minute warning happens and magically... All of a sudden, they start taking chances and they're moving the ball downfield. And you're like, why don't they always play like this? Why isn't it always like the two-minute drill in a game? And so the thrust of the first part of our passage is this, is you've wasted too much time already. God is watching and you're going to have to give an account to him of the time that you, the use of the time that you have. And so make good use of the precious time you have left and live like this. 
And it's in verses 7 through 11 that, that Peter gives us a picture of a life lived with a holy sense of urgency before God. And Peter gives us five marks of the church from this section of the passage. It's where I got my sermon title from, Pray, Love, Eat. Obviously a riff on Elizabeth Gilbert's mega bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, which was turned into a hit feature film starring Julia Roberts. I don't know. Is it any good? Okay, it's not good. All right. <laughs> the, reviews, the reviews are in. Although Rotten Tomatoes might take that as a positive review, actually, if, if you read closer. So... It's not great, but I, so I, who am I to judge? But anyways, uh, this is what Peter talks about. He says, pray, love, eat. And if I, it didn't fit with it, I would have said, steward, glorify, if I were continuing on that theme. And so Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so this is, this is the implication of that statement. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so for Peter, he's saying, this is, this, is what, this is what a life lived. The end is near. God is going to judge. So be clear and sober-minded when you pray. And prayer is something that requires clear-headedness and diligence. And so that's our first job as, as Christians and as a church to be a community that prays together with and for each other. And I like to think of the beginning part of each and every one of our, our worship services sort of this, this three-act play that we're doing every single Sunday. We have the service of prayer and praise, a service of the word, and then a service of the table. And so we begin this service with prayer. A call to worship is a prayer. Confession is a prayer. Our songs that we sing, those are our are, are prayers. The prayers of the people in Lord's Prayer are prayer. Yeah, <laughs> it's in their name. So as Christians, we get together to pray because that's how we can make the best use of the time that we have left. Martin Luther famously said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Now, not many of us are like Martin Luther, but maybe we could say, I have so much to do today, I'll spend the first three minutes in prayer. And so our time is precious, so make sure to pray. And the next one of Peter's marks of the church is love. He says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And this word, earnestly, it it means with maximum effort. It means loving someone at full stretch. It's, It's strenuous. And so why does love in the church require maximum effort? Because love in abstract, who doesn't love love in abstract? But when it gets concrete, it gets difficult. Because newsflash, people are hard to love. There was a similar portion of the letter earlier, and, and the Scottish New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall had this incredible commentary on it. It was really funny. And he does something similar here when he talks about why is it so hard to love people? Why does Peter say love at full stretch with, which ma- with, with maximum effort? And here's what he, he, he said. I have to share it. It's so good. So he's like, why is this so hard? Well, and he, I think he's thinking of his own congregation. There in your local church is Anne, who doesn't know much about hygiene and is frankly smelly. Bill wears you out with his incessant talking. Kathy is unspiritual. Dan doesn't get along with Evelyn. Fred treats his wife badly. Jean is a gauche teenager, never knowing how to act with courtesy and discretion. Hillary often grumbles. Irene has a different set of interests and values. She can't come to the Tuesday evening prayer meeting because it clashes with the local Amnesty International group. And so it goes 
There's Kevin, to be sure, who is really quite saintly, but rather drab as a person. None of them is very easy to love at full stretch. There is also, of course, myself. And I figure in other people's lists of difficult people for similar reasons. And so one of the great things about the church, when we do it properly, when we are doing church well, is that it puts us in community with people who are difficult to love. Because when love is a verb more than emotion, when it demands something from me, it's hard because it forces me to step outside of myself and my selfishness and my desire to be with people who are just like me. All right, so we've gotten pray and love, but now comes eat. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And in the ancient world, hospitality was all about providing food and lodging to strangers. And, and the Greek word for, uh, for hospitality is this beautiful compound word, philo-xenos. Philo meaning love, xenos, you know, that's where we get xenophobia um, and the stranger. So loving strangers. And the early church was absolutely dependent as an institution upon hospitality. Because for the first two or three centuries, there were no church buildings. So if you wanted to have church, someone had to open up their home. And, and, and in the early church, the Christian message spread through these itinerant, wandering evangelists. And so they depended upon Christians to open their homes for hospitality. And this was such an important aspect of life in the early church, hospitality, uh, that there was all kinds of writings have survived about how to avoid abuses and excesses. If someone shows up and says, hey, I'm the wandering evangelist, you know, and then they just use that as an excuse to mooch off of you for a long time. That was a problem, apparently. So they came up with some rules to deal with that. And one of them said, uh, an early Christian writing said, if a prophet comes to town, put him in your house for up to three days. And if they want to stay longer, they're a false prophet. So you get three days in my house and then we're putting the pineapple, turning the pineapples off or whatever. Get out of my house. So from its earliest days, the church depended upon hospitality for, for community formation and for evangelism. And the same is true of the church today. And if hospitality is about welcoming and loving the stranger and it's one of the marks of the church, then it's got to be something that we're good at today. And recently we had this leadership meeting at church and we asked, well, what are the critical, crucial ministry areas of the church? And, and, you know, how do we rank them? And is there something that we need to do in order to be better in a particular area? And one of the things that came out at the very top of the list was hospitality. Saying we have to be good, intentional, focused in that area. And I know Aaron Hupp and Kathy Brody are, are on that. They're leading the team. And in fact, unbeknownst to me, they had a team meeting this morning where they were talking about that and looking at it. It was this beautiful moment of God's synergy and providence that I'm talking about that this morning. And here they are getting a team together to look at how, how on a Sunday morning specifically do, do we welcome people. Because when folks come in this building, it's a scary thing. This is an unknown thing. You don't know what it's going to look like. Who, who's going to be there? Where you're supposed to get coffee? Can you bring it in the sanctuary? Where do you take your kids? Where do you go to the bathroom? It's all this confusing, scary place. And hospitality is about, is about removing that discomfort and making people feel at ease. And it's God's job to make people feel uncomfortable and, and, and convicted. And as we continue to grow and life groups will take on a more important role, it's going to require people showing hospitality, opening up their homes for study, prayer, friendship, fellowship. 
So community formation, hospitality is about that. And, 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 and hospitality is an evangelistic tool. I, I read this article in Christianity Today recently by this woman named Rosaria Butterfield who had this dramatic conversion because of the hospitality of this pastor she knew. And, and him and his wife opened their home regularly to all sorts of people. And it was through this hospitality, this regular opening of their home, that she found Christ. And she has this very helpful distinction between hospitality and entertaining. Right? Entertaining is about impressing people. And then also kind of keeping them at arm's length. Whereas hospitality is about opening your heart and your home just as you are. And being willing to invite Jesus in that conversation, not to stop it, but to deepen it. Hospitality, she says, is fundamentally an act of missional evangelism. And so Christians should be known for creating regular space in our hearts and homes for others. Being front porch people, backyard barbecue people, potluck people. That's one of the most powerful evangelistic things that we can do. And the challenge is to get beyond that entertaining mentality that says, you know, we can only have people over when things are perfect and just so. And, 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 and it requires people like me to help get my house to a place of good enough instead of leaving everything for my spouse to do. It's shared work. But I think in an age when, when more and more people spend more and more time alone with their screens and disconnected, house parties and hospitality, those are powerful tools for God's work. And there's something simple and doable where we take something God has given us and provided us with and we use it for his purposes. Which brings us, so we've got pray, love, eat, and the next thing is steward. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And stewardship is one of my favorite things to talk about in the church. It it used to not be. But the basic principle is this. When you're a steward, you're using something that doesn't belong to you for someone else. And so principles of stewardship, everything belongs to God. And we use it to, to serve others and to glorify him. If we can get that, that can change how we live. And so stewardship means it, 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 what we have doesn't belong to us. It means that we're gifted. You might not know it, but in this room, there are tons and tons and tons of gifts. Tons and tons of gifted people. And you have a gift. When you become a Christian and God's Spirit, does work, God's Spirit begins to do work in your life, it cultivates spiritual gifts in you. And Paul gives a whole list of spiritual gifts. But here Peter just gives these two broad categories. He says, when you speak, speak as though you're speaking of the oracles of God. And when you serve, serve as though it's, you're relying upon God's strength. We might say that, 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 that there's upfront roles and there's behind the scene roles. And the church needs both. And when you've got gifts, the church needs you to use them. And one of our job as a, as a congregation is to help you identify what those gifts are so that you can use them. We did the same thing also with the leadership group recently, doing a spiritual gifts inventory, doing a strength finder, if you've ever done that at work. Because it's good to know what are you good at so you can bring that gift to the table in service. And so that's what we want to do. Because it's all about discerning and discovering what God has already gifted us with and using those to serve one another and God for God's glory. And so that's the last mark of the church. And that's what we'll end with. That all of this is for God's glory. Everything we have, all that we are, all that we do, it points beyond ourselves to God. The giver of all good things.
So friends, God is watching. Time is fleeting. So pray, love, eat, and steward all for the glory of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.